I'd like to begin by thanking our principal funder, which is Arts Council England, and also the supporter, the sponsor of this event, Mrs. Annie Titmus. We're really grateful for their support. So it's a huge pleasure for me uh, to be here today to introduce um, Sarala Estruck and Stephanie C. Queer. Um, so I'm going to do a brief introduction and then I'm going to hand over to them because they're going to um, then manage the event between them. So um, Sarala's uh, debut collection, After We Have Travelled, is published by Nine Arches Press, um, a brilliant press, um, and it was a Poetry Book Society spring recommendation for 2023. Sarala was a finalist of the Primer's Mentorship Scheme, which is actually, um, for anyone interested, they've got an edition opening now, so you can actually apply for the Primer's Scheme, and it's a brilliant scheme. Um, uh, and um, Sarala is also a Ledbury poetry critic, um, and her poetry and reviews have been widely published in outlets including Poetry Review, Wasafiri, The Guardian, and featured on BBC Radio. And then I'd also, I'm very delighted to introduce Stephanie Sequia, whose debut collection, Amnion, has been published by Granta and won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection um, and has been a work, had been a work in progress for nine years. Um, Stephanie is also a Ledbury poetry critic and in that guise, she interviewed Margaret Atwood for us for our first hybrid festival, um, which was in 2021. Um, Stephanie's also an artist and has made a gorgeous hand-printed poster uh, for Ledbury Poetry Festival. And, um, and she's also our guest curator, the first ever guest curator that we've um, ever had at the festival, which is just brilliant. It has been such a brilliant um, thing, seeing Stephanie's events and the really strong themes that she's introduced into the festival. Uh, it's starting to come to life, and we'll, we'll be enjoying those over the next 10 days. So um, it really is a great pleasure uh, to welcome you both to Ledbury. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start with a reading. I'm going to read for about 15 minutes, and then Stephanie's going to read. Um, but yeah, before that, thank you so much for that introduction, Chloe, and thank you um, to Stephanie and to um, the festival for inviting me. I'm really, really delighted to be here with you all. Um, I'm going to read um, the opening, opening poem from um, my debut collection. Um, it's called On Sound. <clears throat> They say no sound is ever lost. That every wail, peal of laughter, bullet burst. Every curse, prayer, oath. Every water skim, pebble roll, snail shell crush reverberates indefinitely at a frequency our ears cannot touch. But the body hears. So 
So, as the title poem suggests, one of the key themes of the collection is how experiences and traumas are carried down through the generations. And the collection draws strongly on personal experience and on family history, um, particularly my experience of losing my father at a young age. And the next poem begins to explore that, but it also begins to probe the complexities of my family history. Um, including the fact that my parents were prohibited from marrying by my paternal relatives. Um, and although my father did have a regular presence in my life, um, I was estranged from my paternal relatives until he passed away. So this poem begins to explore that. My Indian Grandmother. Majestic with silver curls, like a taller version of the queen. She appears at my mother's flat six weeks after my father's death. Call me Gran. I struggle to greet her. My father rarely mentioned her or any family member. My mother shakes her hand with poise. In the kitchen, the kettle screams. She takes me shopping for the day. Have anything you like. By the dress rack, she has a million questions. Wants to know my favorite everything at the pick and mix aisle. I fill the paper bag at her insistence with pear drops and marshmallow twists. Don't tell her I'm not interested in things I used to be. That licorice doesn't taste as sweet and red and green have lost their radiance. In the back of the taxi, I steal a closer look while her head's turned, absorbing London streets, regal neck and silver locks, pale skin gently creped. It's strange to think my father's hair will never grow white, that his skin won't soften and fold into itself, like a rose that holds onto its stalk long after passing its peak. So, um, loss and childhood bereavement are important themes in this work, and I'll now read a poem um, called Guzzle Say which, as the title suggests, um, is in the form of a guzzle, which is an ancient form um, which has been used over centuries to um, explore themes of loss and longing. Um, and a couple of things about the poem. Um, it includes quotations from an essay by Noir Alcidia called The Map of Four Kisses. And in addition, this poem is in conversation with a poem written by Will Harris, who um, is in the room today. So thank you for your poem, Will. Guzzle Say. There is no definable point at which a living organism dies, scientists say. It shakes me to read words I've been striving all these years to find, to say. The universe is rarely ordered in binary ways. How to articulate this basic and profound truth 
my mind struggles to believe, let alone say. All I know is you've been gone these long years, and at the same time, you haven't. You've been right here, though till now, it's not something I thought I could say. Dead and alive are terms whose meanings are wholly psychological. Physiochemically, they merge into one another. They bleed, you could say. Bleed the way my knee did, releasing its dark stain. Running too fast to meet you, I fall. And what was once inside me, now on your hands, your blue shirt. Sorry, I say. You pull me close. In the garden beside the alley in which we crouch, the chestnut trees are whispering, a sound only half got out. Sorry, you say. The whispering grows louder, reverberates in my ear, my throat. Father and poet, tell me honestly, what are you, what am I trying to say? And now I'm looking at how much time I've got. I'm going to read um, a poem called The Residency. Um, so as a person of mixed heritage who grew up estranged from my paternal Indian relatives, um, but who came to develop a warm relationship with them as I grew older, I had many gaps um, of knowledge um, of both my own family history and also of Anglo-Indian history, or British history, I could say, um, which was compounded by the fact that I wasn't taught anything about the British Empire or what they did in India at school. Um, so the next poem is set in Lucknow, um, which is a site, um, one of the primary sites of the First War of Indian Independence, which resulted in many, many casualties, but the speaker doesn't know that yet. <clears throat> I can get some water, sorry. The Residency, Lucknow. The morning you visit the residency, the April sun is already high and intolerable. A brightness blearing the information plaques. Crumbling walls pierced with exit wounds. There is no guide to talk you through who owned and lived in which derelict pile or lead you to the museum which you discover on return to England is a highlight. Only your cousin and husband, both dehydrated, and the children who must be kept out of the sun as much as possible. This is impossible. You almost give up, sitting in shade of a tree with a name you don't know, 
in front of another ruin, history unforthcoming, a legend written in script you can't read. You want to understand this, want and at the same time don't want to know the truth about what happened here, the hurt inflicted on your ancestors on both sides, from both sides. This is your inheritance, or at least a part. You are here now, living, breathing, question mark. I think I have time for one more, and this one will hopefully be a little bit lighter. Um, so this poem is a short final poem, and it, um, having read a poem about uncertainty and um, ambivalence towards unknowing, I thought I would read a poem which celebrates uncertainty and cult cultural and linguistic differences. Um, it's a poem which acknowledges that there is so much in this world we don't know, and that language can't quite capture, and that is a wonderful thing, really. Bouchon. Bouchon. My first word, according to my mother, in my first language. French for bottleneck, cork, plug, stopper. Referring, she says, to the bottle of nappy cream she'd use when changing me. A playground of sound, bouncing b, chased by a persistent oo, gusty whoosh and brusque nasal break. Surprising, really, that it wasn't maman, though perhaps it was, and she has forgotten. Instead, she has chosen to remember my connection with language as a stopper. And it's true. Sometimes I fear the cost, how it holds things down, its false claim to ownership. And I think of all the nameless things a poet spends her life chasing and never quite arriving at. Here in the land of my father and my father's father, I know so little my hungry mind gorges, fed to bursting. There are no stoppers. Thank you. I almost poured water down my mic. Um, <laughs> Hello, thank you all so much for being here. Um, it's wonderful to be able to champion Sarala's beautiful book. Um, Sarala and I met um, when we were both Ledbury critics. Sarala's part of the first cohort and I'm part of the second. And I said to you in the green room that we should not make it so obvious that we're friends because God forbid that uh, people should think <laughs> the festival was nepotistic. But then I think actually just the warmth is going to be quite hard to mask. So we're friends. Live with it. <laughs> um, 
So I'm just going to do a, a very short reading for you today. Um, is my earring causing trouble? No, okay. Um, which is where, um, here we go. <laughs> um, I am writing now from the inky heart of empire, its assonance no more unknown to me. I shall knock the pillars out from under you and label you up in room upon room of Wedgwood blue. I have shuffled all the shards of what came to me broken and I have not pride for dealing in shards is what I wanted. These being my inheritance. These being my demands, my thanks, my by rights. I used to worry that the performance was never quite for my own benefit, that I owed it to others, that without me they might never apprehend and therefore I was duty bound to make the point again and again with the quiet militancy of washing rice before cooking it in a saucepan. This had been the extent of it, cooking rice. But it is possible, as I have found, to delineate blood bearings to each their own. My brother, for instance, is less interested in this quandary. My father, for instance, professes to be half, which would make me a quarter. I reserve his right to do so, but my claim is my own. And when it comes to the men of my family, I do not think it has nothing to do with their command of desire, depending. Who was MRA? One who was given a coat embroidered with love stories so that when donned, she was clothed in romance. She fled. She wandered. The coat weighed until she cast it off. And then she was free, her shoulders bare with their elusive curves. All the uses of my body and what others would have me put it to. Blood is so contrived. Texts are porous. I am walking from one to the other. I am clothed in romance. I am casting it off. Like this, I am primeval as a woman in a sundress. I have become one of the gritty women with freckles peppering the loose skin of their arms. I am walking through a many-furrowed field which in relinquished seasons is feathered with asparagus. In this late light of an early century, the ash shades of earth and stubble, I plight, give, pledge, you my troth, fealty, loyalty, truth. My mother was born on the Sahara's edge, blonde with blue eyes in the dark hands of the doctor who slapped her to breath. In the beginning, the begetting. Later, Mary, Igraine, the Sabines, the mothers of Theseus and Heracles, blessed among women. When the wall fell, my mother was 21, and she cried because this was the end of the world as she had known it. In the place where I grew up, there were horses, thighs moving like nudity under their fur. The pigeons are clattering into the heights now. In the British Museum, there are shards of horse. In the British Museum, there is a blind lion. My grandfather collected lions. 
Empires are like milk teeth. They fall. It is only in European epistemologies that the desert or the jungle or the dragon bay is configured as a void and therefore the backdrop for the single blanching passion as per moon tiger out of Africa, Indochine. And of my mother's birth and the doctor's hands, the doctor's darker hands, why did I make mention? These are the tropes that gape. Thank you. So, Sarala. Yes, I'm just shifting over. <laughs> I think we should begin by defining family history. What is it? Oh, that's what we said we were going to talk about. Yes, in the drawing <laughs> room, we were like, we should say what this is. Um, I was saying that in context of... Is my mic on? I'm not... Yes, it is. Okay. Um, oh, that's very loud now. Okay. I was just saying that in the context of, I feel like I write about family, and family is in sort of every single poem. Um, and I also feel that it's, every poem is sort of about family, because when you're writing about yourself, or if you're writing about anything, you're writing about yourself, whatever you're writing about, and your family inform you, mm. and, and vice versa. So um, I was just saying that it, I found it really difficult trying to choose poems about family history, um, because I don't see my book as being like a quest to discover my family history, although that has been an element of my life. So, yeah, what is family history to you? I might throw that back at you. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Um, well, family history is... I suppose, for me, what was interesting about family history was um, the anecdote and the form of the anecdote and how the anecdote is this very... Um, organic but also relatively ephemeral form in that we all have a bank of family stories um, and, and people come up to me at the end of events and they say, oh, you know, you have such an amazing family history, mine is so boring. And I say, I always say there's no such thing as a boring family history because somewhere, even if you don't know what the story is, somewhere along the line, someone will have done something moving or impressive or come into contact with some kind of macro historical event um, in some tiny way. So, I mean, for me, the, what's interesting about the anecdote is that the best anecdotes are the ones where, as I say, a macro historical event, a world event, you know, your Berlin Wall coming down, your 9-11, um, your, um, you know, the, the Blitz, so many examples, right? You know, the, the 20th century was pretty profligate in um, kind of everyone, every civilian, I think, somewhere at very few degrees of separation has a story of a major um, event. And it, I think that it kind of transubstantiates history, really, into being something that continues to live in us. So if, if those anecdotes are within your ancestors you know, even if it's an immediate ancestor like a parent, I think that the sort of genetic aspect of that, um, the fact that it is in you somehow, really captured my imagination. Um, and also that 
even though those stories can be really dramatic, you know, I don't have any anecdotes about the First World War. I think the earliest one that I've ever heard of anyone having is my history teacher at school, and his great-great-grandmother grew up in Paris and was a small girl during the Prussian War when there were food shortages in Paris, and so they killed and ate all the animals in the zoo, and she remembers eating some of the elephant. But, you know, that's the 1870s, um, and that's the, the kind of furthest, it's kind of like uh, the notion of the proscenium, you know, the, the memory of the forest is, goes only as far back as the oldest tree in the forest. And that's the oldest one that I've ever heard of. But otherwise, you know, it only really goes back two generations, and then they, they die with the teller because they lose their vividness. And so I wanted to kind of collate the anecdotes in my family um, and, and have that be a way of kind of immortalizing them and, you know, piecing together the, the shards of it, really. Um, and there are, there are histories of families other than my own, as it were, um, which also captured my imagination, I, would su I suppose, but I guess it was harder for me to justify my claim to those. And I think the, the claim to family history is something I have sweated over a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that leads into my question. I don't know if you want me to probe that a bit more. Well, this is one of the questions we had on here, which was um, a, uh, a poem that I didn't end up reading because I felt like I was running out of time. Um, but in Grandfather Speaks, I quote Maniza Alvi, who says, um, the family history, is it there for the taking? And um, then we were going to talk about when we write family history, are we taking or, or what are we doing with that? And I think just to sort of respond to what you were just saying, um, we, all, we all have family histories and, you know, lots of us here are, are writers. And when you were talking about, so that's sort of what the book is about, my book is about as well, in terms of they are our stories. We have inherited these memories, even if they're not spoken about. So the particular poem um, that has the Manisa Alvi quote is about partition, the partition of um, India and Pakistan. And um, it's, it's well known that within the South Asian um, community, it's very, very difficult to, to speak about the atrocities um, and the whole experiences of what happened in partition. But there's also a growing awareness with younger generations that it has informed our lives, even if we're not aware of the, the details. It has shaped our, par our parents and our grandparents. And um, so it's this quandary is, are we... So her exact quote is, the family story, is it there for the taking? Is it mine for the taking? And I think it's a question that we, we all ask ourselves. Um, but the family story is, is also our story. Yeah, I mean, I think what strikes me about your book is that it's written with so much love. And, you know, I think that, you know, if, if you just let the love be your guiding impulse, then you probably can't go far wrong, I would have thought. That was our, that was our question about how, how do we do that? So how do we hold other people's trauma? And I think this is just, it's such a difficult difficult question that you know I don't I don't have the answer for I don't think anybody has the answer for but it's for me it's so important to write about traumatic events as sensitively as possible and 
in a safe way as possible, but on the other hand, repressing these stories, I think, creates immense harm. So um, for me, my aim is to, to bring up what has been submerged, but do it in a way that is healing, because I think, I think there are so many um, atrocities that haven't even been properly acknowledged, yeah. and um, that links to, you know, we were talking about Jolly and Wallabarg and how, you know, the British government still hasn't apologised for several, you know, several yeah. atrocities yeah. that we'll, were committed. We'll come on to that in a minute, yeah. but you just said something really interesting about, um, you know, unsubmerging, like bringing things out into the light in a way that's healing. I mean, how did you go about that with your family members? Did you ask them questions or did you kind of deal only in the stories that were already in the kind of, um, you know, public use, as it were, of mm. your family? Because that was something I was very conscious of. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you say in your book, you say, I just, I dealt with the shards that I was given and I didn't probe and I didn't try to, you know, fix or, or you know, I wasn't trying to force a coherent narrative, which I love. And I think, yeah, I was, although I have over the years spoken to my family members, you know, in and around, you know, asked them about their lives, I didn't directly... Um, sort of set out to find the answers to the holes in my poems. The poems, the poems sort of happened separately. So I think my life has been a quest of trying to understand a quite complicated history. Um, and beyond that, as you were saying, also a national history and a yeah. global history, because our family histories, our histories are embedded within our family histories, and family histories are embedded within communal histories. Communal histories are embedded within, you know, national and global histories. So, um, but I feel like the, that has been my life's work. But then the poems emerge out of the things that poems emerge out of. So, a sound or an image or um, a phrase um, or, you know, an interest, a question. I think most of the time my poems came out of a, a question. Um, well, yeah. I mean, to make a, an etymological uh, leap now, you know, you just mentioned questions and you also mentioned uh, the sort of quest narrative. And I think a lot of family histories do have that kind of questing impulse, um, which, you know, ultimately is, I would go so far as to say, quite a masculine tradition. Um, and how, I mean, I know you said that this book isn't a quest narrative in many ways, but I mean, why not? Mm. <laughs> um, you know, what is it instead? Uh, let's problematize the idea of questing for family history. Mm. Oh, I love that, and I definitely want to talk about that for your book, because I know you play with epic, so that's going to be really, really interesting for you. My book, I'd say is, it's different because the poems are discrete. So my book is quite interesting in that it, it does follow loosely a narrative, moves around with... It's, I think it's sort of chronological, but then towards the end of the book, chronology is is not important and that's why it's not a quest for a story because there's no beginning there's no middle there's no end time is porous it's about memory more than story or even facts it's so i think the story is more about sort of emotion and intergenerational trauma which may not have language to it um which is why for me it's definitely not a straightforward quest it's more of an experience and seeking some form of, you know, 
shift in each poem. There's a, it's a seeking for growth and a seeking for bringing together disparate parts of myself, I suppose. Well, and I suppose also that um, a work of family history such as yours, mm. which is dealing with quite difficult subject matter at times, it is a, a very active process. You know, it is a very active series of speech acts mm. to look at, you know, the pockets of silence within a family and the way that a family has dealt with a huge historical event that has affected it and so on and so forth. Mm. And so it's, it's very much a, you know, reading this book is such a sort of active, involved process. It happens before your eyes. You know, it's not a static thing. Yes. Yes, that's, I think that's what's important for me in the book is that it's shifting, it's always shifting. And that's why I love poetry, because there is no one way to read any of the poems. Some of the poems are contrapuntal poems. You can read them you know, in, in different ways. And that, that's one of the things that was really important to me, was to acknowledge through the form itself that this is, this is not fact, this is not you know, a memoir, We'll, we'll come to you in a minute because you're doing something similar but in a different way. Um, but this is, um, this is poetry. This deals with uncertainty. uncertainty. This deals with unknowing and being, being honest about that rather than um, filling in holes. You're asking a question, how do you fill in the gaps? Well, you don't, <clears throat> you don't fit it in with you know, stuff that doesn't go in there. You, you acknowledge those gaps. Yeah, I mean... W- I only mention this because uh, the lovely Will Harris is in the room uh, with us today, but he was so kind as to give Amnion a quote where he said, Amnion squirs, squirms with a uh, unique resistance. And I was just delighted by that because I felt that he'd really like, grasped the kind of fundamental like, wriggliness <laughs> of, of my book. Um, although wriggly is probably not the one word pull quote that I you know, would want to <laughs> have on the back cover. Um, but... Exactly that, just kind of, you know, trying to sort of dodge the categorizing impulse, I think, which, you know, especially as poets of, like, mixed uh, heritage, um, we have to deal with a lot, and, and it can get quite tiring. You know, I think I'm sure you have a similar impatience of just wanting to, like, toss out the, uh, the kind of pre-existing metrics. Um, but I want to come now to... Again, silences, um, difficult silences. I was reading this amazing sobriety memoir, uh, which is also a memoir of, um, so the author is Octavia Bright. The book is called This Ragged Grace. It came out this time last month. Uh, So it's very new and it's excellent. I would highly recommend it. Um, But it's sort of a sobriety memoir on the one hand and then also about caring for her father who um, had Alzheimer's and then died. but she has this great line in there, which I really hope will just kind of enter the canon of writing on this topic, where she says, one of the most complicated family dynamics is navigating everyone's right to denial, which is a tricky one. And how did you do that as someone who was writing for publication? Yes. Um, hmm. <laughs> I, I read the, there's a Guardian long read for anyone who, who wants to find out more about the book, but before buying the book. Um, so I read that, it was really, really interesting. And um, for me, it's about acknowledging, again, what I've sort of hinted at before, which is that no one will have the same, fam- the same narrative. Nobody's accounts of the family history will be, will be the same. Everybody will have their own 
story, they will have had their own perspective, people will interpret things differently. So I think, yes, that's something that um, I suppose one just has to keep in mind when one is writing about family and accepting that. that um, so I think Octavia Bright talks about denial being really important as a sort of safety mechanism. People yeah. um, need denial when they are not ready yet to yeah. take on a very you know, painful truth or you know, what is truth, but to take on, you know, accept this emotional pain which they are yeah. blocking from. And it, it can be very, yeah. and denial can be extremely brave. Like yeah. it doesn't get its due as an act of bravery as well. You know, actually the, I mean, obviously it's, it's a tricky concept, but you know, I think that certain, everyone has, has their ways of, and generally, generationally as well, yes. that is its own yes. beast. You know, everyone has their ways of dealing with traumatic events yes. and actually the strength of will it can take to think about things in certain ways is impressive. I mean, yeah. let's use a neutral word. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah, I definitely, like in Grandfather Speaks, I'm acknowledging that he didn't speak about partition and that was, you know, he couldn't speak about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and that was one his has right. to respect that. That yeah. is his right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then it's also, you know, future generations' right to also probe that if they need that as well mm. in the way that is safe to them. Yeah. So I think it's not either or. Yeah. So a tricky question, but if we then scale up that right to denial to a societal level, mm. as you mentioned earlier, um, the British government has not been forthcoming about a great many things, but one of the examples you use in your book is an apology for the Jalanwalabag massacre in 1919, um, sometimes known as the Amritsar massacre. Um, and now a governmental apology is also a kind of speech act. Often when these apologies are made, you know, they're, they're not accompanied by action, mm. concrete action. Um, so is it enough? And also poetry after all is a speech act. And is poetry enough? Is poetry enough? <laughs> <laughs> I'm throwing this back to all the poets in the room. That's such a huge question. Um, my answer to that would be no, it is not enough. It is not enough in itself, but it is a beginning. And it's a very important beginning. I think the first step is acknowledging that these wrongs have been done and apology is, is really reparative and it's, it's the first step towards healing and I just think it's so important. I think, how can you move on? How can you move on if there hasn't been apology, if there hasn't been acknowledgement? And I just think that it's just so, so, so necessary in, in every relationship, personal relationships and, and wide, you know, national um, relationships that reparations are made first by, through acknowledging, then th through apologizing and then through, you know, reparative acts. Yeah, and apology is such a profound um, act and apology can also feel really good. And this is something that I think, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, <laughs> we are really not used to, I mean, how many of you are aware of the fact that there's currently a big row going on with um, a translator of Chinese poetry who was not credited in a British museum exhibition yes. for a translation of, for one of her translations. So they've quoted a full poem by a Chinese poet 
in the English, in Yilin Wang's translation, they have not credited her. The exhibition was programmed by two white scholars. They got a grant from the Arts Council, or a funding body, of three and a half, no, sorry, three quarters <laughs> of a million pounds. And uh, when their mistake was brought to their attention, they took the translation off the exhibit and issued no apology. And, you know, this is the British Museum, so one would hope that they'd be a bit more conscious of their history as an institution that makes no apologies uh, and yeah. do something to remedy that. Um, so I just, I think that's fascinating that there's this history of doubling down, you know, and, and actually the easy thing to do would have been to just make an apology mm. and pledge not to do it again. Mm. And, you know, of course, now it's just turning into a massive campaign about name your translators. Yeah, but what it comes down to is accountability, doesn't yeah. it? And I think that's, you know, accountability needs to be taken so that we can move on. That's the thing, we need to change. Yeah. We do need change. Yeah, and I mean, to dial it back down to the familial scale, the idea of accountability is uh, a really interesting one as well, because I mean, I remember with my book, you know, there were definitely aspects of the family history or of my experience growing up where, you know, that caused some, some raised eyebrows, some difficult conversations, but I feel the better for having had those conversations, and I guess I was lucky that my family members were receptive to having them. I mean, do you feel that that's been your experience? Yeah, yeah. I, sorry, I, I want to respond to that, but I also want to say <laughs> that um, when you were saying that, one of my favorite parts of your book is when you have your nana respond to mm. the book, um, and I think that's such, that's really sort of allows insight into this whole write, the whole process of writing about family history and then also bringing that to family members and then having that actually become part of the book. I mean, how, how did you, how did um, that come about? <laughs> Sneakily done. Um, not then you would have to show it to her again. Yeah. Um, no, she, how did that come about? Well, I had met... I had just gone freelance, and so I was uh, poor and scared. And then a, a literary agent got in touch with me saying, you know, would love to hear more about what you might be working on. And I had this thing, you know, on my laptop that I'd been tinkering away at for nine years. And I thought, wow, you know, of all years, it would be really great if I could have a little, you know obviously aim for the stars and hope that, you know, could get something published. Um, and, and then I would have something to show for this, you know, ridiculous, uh, reckless decision I made to go freelance. Um, but and I, so I was suddenly very keen to show it to the agent and the wonderful Sarah Howe, who's also here today, uh, was also reading the manuscript at the time because I had come to the juncture where I thought I need someone else to look at this and tell me if it's worth pursuing or whether it should just die quietly in a drawer. Um, and so, yeah, thankfully, Sarah very kindly said, take it out of the drawer. <laughs> and my life changed Thankfully. forever <laughs> after that. But um, no, so then I thought, okay, well, I can't send it to the agent until I've sent it to my family, sent it to my parents first, sent it to my grandmothers. And I said to my grandmothers, look, you know, I'm actually not so interested in minor factual inaccuracies. Um, but I would, like, I do really want you to tell me if you feel that I have fundamentally mishandled any of this material. Um, 
and I was extremely lucky. So I was asking for their blessing, asking all my family for their blessing, really. Um, but I was extremely lucky that my grandmothers came back to me detailing all the factual inaccuracies, and then that was kind of it. And so I was like, okay, just take the blessing and run, and, uh, and that's, that's what I did. And I always say that, because I really love that passage you yeah, refer to it. as well, it comes near the end of the book, and it's basically you know, a, an edited transcript of a phone call with my nana and an edited email from my Lola. Um, but I always say that it kind of hands, gives them the last laugh. So at mm. the very end of the book, you know, here they are kind of setting the record straight and it kind of pulls the rug out from you mm. and, and throws up the question of like, you know, whose story is it anyway? Meh, you know. Yeah, yeah but also <laughs> coming back to what you wrote in the blurb about are you, you know, are you killing your mother or are you honouring your mother? And it, definitely when you speak about your grandmothers there, there's a real sense of honouring and... You know, it's our shared story. It's your family's shared story, but you're also giving them a voice in that. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, my um, one grandfather has been estranged, you know, all of my father's life um, and died recently, but, you know, wasn't a part of our life at all. And the other grandfather died 20 years ago. So, you know, um, they just weren't, they, they weren't presences in my life. And therefore, you know, matriarchies, were really, really important to me. And, and just thinking about, you know, wh whose histories get written about in the mm. first place mm. um, and, and wanting to kind of really put matrilinearity on the record, um, which actually brings me to one of my other questions. So you have two beautiful children. Yes. And I have no beautiful children. I only have, <laughs> I only have this one, yes. <laughs> which is currently ink-stained and child. probably falling apart. <laughs> um, but... You know, so this is a question about, uh, sorry, this is a book about kind of family chronicling and, but also family making, you know, and, <laughs> and family finding as well. Um, I wondered whether you could, family futures as well. Could you speak yes. to that? Yes. Um, so when we were talking about what is family history and I was saying, oh gosh, Gosh, I know I said that I want to do a panel on family history. Is my, fam is my book about family history? I, I don't know. It's about family. It's about, you know, it's about me. It's about, well, it's not just about me. It's not, you know, obviously it's a, it's a work of art as well. So I, I hate also making that elision, immediately making it sound like it's memoir because it's not. But, um, but, I was about, but it's also about, it's about the past, but it's about the present and it's about the future. Um, because it's, a, it's about growth, really, I think. And it's about relation. And um, yes, yeah, so I was actually going to read my more cheerful sort of poems are about motherhood. But um, yeah, there are too many themes in the book um, for you to um, have sample today. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, that was important for me to... The, well, yeah. the poetics of motherhood are having a really prolonged mm. moment, I would say. Um, and how did you feel yourself in relation to that tradition, that emerging tradition? Yes, so um, I was actually, so some of the motherhood poems, some of them are some of my older poems, and actually it was through this urgency to write during early motherhood that made me come back to writing poetry um, seriously. I was dabbling with um, prose for a very long time, actually. Um, and yeah, there's something about the immediacy of poetry that um, allowed me to just really start grappling with these questions of, of motherhood, which I felt weren't being written about enough when I was starting doing this. This was about 
uh, 10 years ago or so, but right around then, everybody sort of, there must have been something in the air, Every, yeah. you know, poets just started um, getting into this subject, which, yeah, there's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge subject, and, and um, also fatherhood as well yeah. is getting more written about, so I yeah. think... Yeah, these are all things that are, are complex and that society likes to couch in easy myths yeah. and um, that they need to be explored in poetry. Yeah, probed, like lancing a boil. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do we, finally, do in we your... we probably need to go to audience questions in a minute? Yeah, well, we'll have one last question um, in your acknowledgements. So I... Yes tip for any of you who don't do this already but my favorite thing to do when I read a book is read the acknowledgements first because they often have kind of the most concise articulation of the author's project mm. often unbeknownst to them some of the most moving you know in a book of love poems the most moving thing might be the acknowledgements which isn't an indictment of the love poems it's just I think the concision that acknowledgements force uh, can be really, really beautiful. Anyway, in your acknowledgements, your last thanks goes to, in normally the slot that is reserved for a partner, children, a parent, you know, some huge loving figure in someone's life, your thanks go to the readers and writers of poetry for making poetry relevant in our lives. So that sort of got me thinking about art and artistic influence as a form of chosen family and, and lateral lines of influence. Um, you know, you don't necessarily inherit a tradition from above, but with your contemporaries. Yes. Um, is that something that you would like to speak to? Yes. Yeah, I love that you've said that because I don't, that wasn't conscious. And also to say that I do thank my family and my husband and my yeah, kids yeah. and everybody else <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the final thanks is to poets and readers of poetry for continuing to make poetry relevant to our lives because, um, yeah, that's why, that's why we're here now. And um, yeah, that's where I'm having these amazing conversations of, about things that are not often spoken about. And I feel poetry allows us to have these really important, deeper conversations that I think ordinary language sort of can't quite get to grips with. But in terms of who, yeah, I think you're saying who, who are my um, people. Um, so I have, um, yeah, I'm, so my poems are often written in conversation with contemporary poets. So Will Harris, Sarah Howe, Sandeep Palmar, um, Barney Capel, um, also, um, I'm part of a collective called the Kinara Collective. They're like a chosen family for me. Ledbury Poetry Critics are like a chosen family for me. And they, they do allow poetry to continue to happen. Um, none of my, fa my actual family members are writers. So, um, yes, how about for yourself? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, same here. I mean, I'm not part of any collective other than the Ledbury Critics, but it has, I mean, as I say in the program, you know, it's just had this completely invaluable influence in my life and helped me find my vocation and a whole bunch of new friends. So, yeah. Um, probably time for audience, like good audience questions. To, to go to the audience, yeah. <laughs> any questions from anybody? Oh, there's a mic over there. Oh, Sean. Anyone else? Not to know my name. <laughs> oh, sorry. The, 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 the man, gentleman the man with the over crystal. There. <laughs> um, thank you for that conversation. Um, I'm just going to ask my question, which I 
it's something you repeated. Um, I'm curious about growth because I think that's something that is interesting. And I'm, I guess I'm in my head. I'm kind of like, where? How do you know you've grown? And is the writing of a poem the result of growth? Is it the enactment of growth? Do you grow because you did it? And like how? any one of those, maybe multiple, and then also how do you, yeah, how, what is the manifestation of growth? Is it a poetic, technical growth? Is it an empathetic thing? Is it a, like, how do you know? Is it something you can only know afterwards, like now that your book's been out for four, five, five months, six months? Six months, um, yeah. Does it, is it now that you're able to be able to see that growth, or did you feel it when, how do you track that, and how do you know it's happening? If the poem's you know, are, um, if that's what the poems are seeking to kind of, um, yeah, work or make, make, make evident. Is it yeah. about showing growth or is it just a kind of interpersonal thing that happens because you've gone through the act of poesis? Mm, that's such and that's a good either, question. that's for either of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a good question. I'll, I'll start if that's okay. Um, it felt like a part of that question is like sort of when do you know that growth has happened and um, which kind of made me think of like when does a poem, how do you know a poem is finished or when does a poem end? I think, I don't know if this is a, a good answer. I was going to say it's continual that I don't think that the growth has stopped because I stopped writing those poems. I think every time I revisit those poems, every time I read those poems, I learn something new. I continue to grow. So I would say that the whole process from, you know, just having the ideas, thinking through it, jotting down, free writing, to, okay, getting down something, you know, a kind of poem-esque on the page, working with the editor, working with mentors, it's, it's such a long growth process that actually quite amazingly and wonderfully just doesn't even end when the poem is, is done. Yeah, I mean, I would say actually, because I remember pre-publication, I sort of, you know, I, I had got, I had had a degree in English literature and I was like, the author is dead and I, you know, like, I don't know what I have to do with it. And uh, so I was sort of, you know, and I think that was coming from a place of nervousness more than anything else, that I was scared about having to speak on behalf of the book and that anything I might say might compromise the book, kind of making its way out into the world. Um, but then I found that it's really, really fun. And it, I think talking about the book has been so inspiring for my next project and seeing, like, when I read bits of the book, seeing, you know, what I choose to read and how that makes my, like, where the emphasis of my concerns is sort of shifting yes. all the time has been a really exciting process to observe. Um, so yeah. I would say this kind of thing which helps with growth. Yeah, <laughs> but which is growth? So as, you, as you're saying, the concerns shift and, that, and that's how you know growth is happening. Yeah. And you're being given the opportunity to have that experience, which is a wonderful, precious thing. And which is why it's also so important to get the poems down and to publish to allow that growth to happen. Because I think when it was in my head, the, that growth wasn't happening and I was sort of being a bit stuck. Whereas the whole process of writing and publishing and talking with people. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't that. say it's just publishing, but find people you can talk about poetry to. Yes. Because pub publishing isn't everything. Yeah. But um, yeah, find, find your poetry pals. Yeah, talk to people about poetry, <laughs> about your poetry. Yeah. 
Uh, I think one, one or two more questions. Yes. Thank you. Stripey sleeve. <laughs> I was in, I was interested in what you said about denial, and um, that's a major thing, isn't it? Um, if you're, I'm thinking um, from a personal point of view, I wasn't able to write about my my ethnic background, family and ethnic background, until my mother died because my mother was in total denial about her roots. And um, I wondered how, if you had been, you seem to have got the blessing of your families for what you did, but if you had come up against that resistance, what would you have done? Um, Well, I mean, I think what you're talking about is shame, which is quite distinct. I mean, it's definitely, with it comes under the umbrella of trauma, but... um, I would say is it's quite important to distinguish between shame and something else because whereas there are other forms of trauma that I wouldn't want to touch too much if they belong to other people, I think, um, and you have to be gentle, you know, you can't force it, but I think that um, helping people to, you know, stop feeling ashamed about things is really valuable work. Mm. Um, I don't know whether you yeah. agree. Um, yes, absolutely agree with that. I think shame, yeah, it's known that shame sort of, you know, thrives in silence. And so bring, that's what I was talking about, bringing these stories up is where the healing begins. So um, that's, why, that's why we feel so compelled to write these stories. Um, but on the other hand, I have to say that there, have been a, there has been at least one poem that um, actually my husband wasn't very happy with, and that was for his own reasons, and so this wasn't, this wasn't part of this book, this was something a long time ago, and he said, oh, I don't want you to publish that. And there was another poem that I had, which was also about my husband, and I thought, I had, didn't even show it to him, and I thought he wouldn't be happy with me publishing that. So I think, you know, you do have to ask yourself these questions, you do have to respect the people that you, that you love, um, so, it, you know, it, again, it, there's no neat answer to that. Um, do we have time for one, one more? We've got like a minute or two, or not. I don't know. My watch is a bit slow. Is that time? It's like 30 seconds. Speak now or forever <laughs> hold your peace. I think that's time, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, that was really nice.